We'll take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been working our way here through 1 Peter 1, and it's been a wonderful study, a wonderful time, as Peter is writing this letter to these aliens who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those who are chosen in Christ. If someone came up and asked you to define the word joy, how would you define it? Does joy come because of something that will happen? Or something that happens to you? Is joy something that is dependent upon our circumstances? Or is it independent of our circumstances? Oftentimes, when people define joy, they define it simply as happiness. Happiness. Which happiness is something that is dependent upon circumstances or happenings in our lives. Something happens that we like, then we are happy. But if something happens to us that we don't like, we are the opposite of happy. We are sad. But what about joy? What about joy? Can you have joy even when something happens to you that you don't like? Listen to how Warren Wearsby defines joy. He says, It is that inward peace and sufficiency that is not affected by outward circumstances. Matthew Henry defines joy as a constant delight in God. I love that. A constant delight in God. Donald Campbell says, Joy is a deep and abiding inner rejoicing which was promised to those who abide in Christ. It does not depend upon circumstances because it, re- it rests in God's sovereign control of all things. Our joy rests and God's sovereign control of all things. And then listen to how Adam Clark defines joy. He defines it as the exaltation that arises from a sense of God's mercy communicated to the soul in the pardon of his iniquities. And the prospect of that eternal glory of which it has the foretaste In the pardon of sin. In the pardon of sin. What is Adam Clark tying our joy to? He's tying our joy to salvation. He's tying the joy of the Christian life to salvation. It's a pardon of his iniquities. We have been saved. Our iniquities, our sin has been forgiven. And therefore, what should our response be continuously? Joy. We should be filled with joy. And that's what Peter is reminding his readers of here in our text this morning. 
If you remember, back in verses 3 through 5, we talked about how Peter is urging these persecuted believers whom he's writing to, to bless God, to worship Him, to give praise unto God. And why should they worship Him? Why should these persecuted believers worship Him? Because they have been born again. They've been born again. It is their salvation that motivates them to praise God. And now as Peter continues on in verses 6-9, through he's reminding them of what they currently experience in light of their great salvation. In light of the fact that they have been saved, there are things now that they are experiencing in their lives. And what is it that they experience? They experience joy. Great joy. There are people who are filled with joy. Even in the midst of their suffering and persecution, these are believers who have joy. And how is it that they're able to have joy in the midst of their sufferings and persecution? Because their joy is not dependent upon their circumstances. But it's dependent upon the reality of their salvation. Let me show you. Follow along as I read our passage for us in 1 Peter 1 beginning in verse 6. Notice what Peter says here. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Notice what Peter says there in verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. And then in verse 8, he says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. These persecuted believers in whom Peter is writing to, he knows that they are joy-filled people. In fact, later in this letter, in chapter 4 and verse 13, Peter commands them to keep on rejoicing where he says this, but to the degree that you share, in, in, share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. What is Peter saying here? He's saying that you must continue on rejoicing and not let your circumstances steal your joy. Don't let your circumstances steal your joy, church. Continue on rejoicing. In fact, our our trials and our tribulations and suffering for Christ should not be reason to lose heart, 
but should be reason for us to rejoice. Why? Because our joy is not tied to our circumstances. But our joy is tied to our salvation. It's tied to our salvation. Something that can't be taken from us. And something that won't change. As God's children, we won't wake up tomorrow unsaved. But we will wake up tomorrow saved. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and for all of eternity, we are God's. We belong to Him. We are His children. And that should cause us to rejoice. Listen, if you have been saved by God, then your salvation is secure in Christ. And can anyone steal that from you? They can't. No one can steal that from you. And so, since our joy is tied to our salvation, which can't be taken away from us, then how should we constantly be living our lives? Full of joy. Full of joy. And so that is what Peter is encouraging here in verses 6 through 9. And as we work our way through this passage here this morning, we're going to see five ways we find joy in this present world. Five ways that you and I find joy in this present world. And as we work our way through these verses here, I want you to see how all of these are tied in with our salvation. It's all tied in with our salvation. Not with our circumstances, but with the reality that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, let's look at these. Number one, we find joy in our present salvation. We find joy in our present salvation. Notice again what Peter says at the beginning of verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. And we should immediately stop here at this moment and ask this question, what is the this that you are talking about, Peter? What do you mean by this? If we rejoice in this, what does Peter mean by this? Well, the this that Peter is talking about is the salvation that he just spoke about back in verses 3 through 5. That's what he's talking about there. Remember, he told us that we should praise God because he, by his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. What did we do to be born again? Answer? Nothing. Nothing. He caused us to be born again. And then, because we're born again, we responded by repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Christ. But He's the one, by His great mercy, who caused us to be born again. That's what Peter's been telling us. And because we have been born again, we have living hope. 
Because we've been born again, we have a future inheritance in heaven. Because we've been born again, we are protected by God and will receive the future inheritance through faith. All of those are the benefits that we receive because of our salvation. Because God has caused us to be born again. And Peter now says, because of that present salvation that you have received, you are presently or currently rejoicing. But notice, not just rejoicing, but notice what he says there in verse 6. He says, but greatly rejoicing. You are greatly rejoicing. The Greek word used here for greatly rejoicing is agaliao. And it means to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be glad, to be overjoyed. And Peter uses this word three times in this letter. To these believers that he's writing to here in verse 6 down in verse 8 and over in chapter 4 in verse 13 he uses this word three times here and what is interesting is that this word this greek word was not used in secular greek to speak of joy but it is a distinctly religious joy it's a religious joy This is a word that was used to express both corporate and individual attitudes of thankful joy before God. This is not some generic word for joy like we would hear today in our secular world. Someone wins a car on a a game show and they say, I'm just so overjoyed. Or you'll hear athletes say of their sport, this sport brings me much joy. Peter isn't using just a common word for greatly rejoicing here. But he's using a word that is specifically tied to joyful thanksgiving of God. It's a joy that's directly tied to joy in the Lord. This is our joy in the Lord. And notice that Peter here is not commanding these persecuted believers to have joy. But they are those who have joy even in the midst of their persecution. Why is it that they're able to have joy? Because of the salvation that they've been given by God, right? It's because of their salvation. You see, as believers, we should be people who are always rejoicing because we have been saved. We should be those who are greatly rejoicing in the fact that we have been born again by God's great mercy. And isn't that what Jesus told us? Listen to Luke 10.20. In Luke 10.20, Jesus said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Rejoice in that. Rejoice not in the things of this world, but rejoice that we are saved. That our citizenship is in heaven, 
because of the salvation that we have been given by Christ. Rejoice in that. It's our salvation in Christ that should cause us to continually rejoice. Not our circumstances. Not because something good happens to us. That's tied to our happiness. But we should be those who are constantly rejoicing. It's tied to our salvation. In fact, in Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Or what we often call the prodigal son. That's really what it's about there. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in each of these parables, there is joy because of salvation. In Luke 15, 7, after giving the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says this, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then in Luke 15.10, after giving the parable of the lost coin, Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in Luke 15.32, after telling the parable of the lost son, we see the response of the father over the son, his son who was found. And the father tells the oldest son, who is upset about all that the father is doing for the son who is found. And listen to what he says in verse 32 of Luke 15. He says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. You see, joy is tied to our salvation. Not to our circumstances around us, but to the reality that we have been saved by Christ. And Peter knows that this is the response of these believers who are going through persecution. Going through trials and trouble in their life. They're living a joyful life. They're living as those who are rejoicing. And in spite of their circumstances around them, they have great reason to have joy. And Peter knows this well. In fact, Peter had to learn this lesson himself from Christ. Where did he learn it? Turn in your Bibles back to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about his death and resurrection. He's already told them a few times that he is going to die and rise again. Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 16 and verse 16. Notice what he says there. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing that he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. Verse 18, so they were saying, 
what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while? And you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Verse 21, he gives an illustration. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. And then notice what he says here at the end of verse 22. And no one will take your joy away from you. No one will. What is Jesus teaching the disciples here? He's telling them that they will experience a time of grief. There is a time of grief that will come upon them. When will that time of grief be? When Jesus goes to the cross. When he goes to the cross. And during this time, the world will be rejoicing. The Jews will rejoice that the so-called Messiah is dead. They'll rejoice. The world will rejoice at this time. But their grief would be turned into joy when they see him again and life after death is realized. And then Jesus says in verse 22, and no one will take your joy away from you. No one. No one can take it. When they realize what Jesus has done to save them and their salvation is finally realized in Christ, they will have a joy that no one can take away from them. Now, did their grief turn into joy? Turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And notice what it says in verse 19. John tells us there, in John 20, in verse 19, he says, So when it was evening on that day, this is after the resurrection, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then, what? Rejoiced. Rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Their grief was turned into joy. They rejoiced when they saw the risen Savior. They were grieved over the fact that Christ went to the cross, that He died on the cross, but 
He resurrected. And He stood amongst them and He showed them His hands and His side. And they respond with joy. They rejoice. Because they realize Jesus is alive. And then, 50 days later, they would receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Luke tells us, after the day of Pentecost, or on the day of Pentecost there, after they have received the Holy Spirit, notice what it says, In verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with, notice, gladness and sincerity of heart. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. You see that word gladness there? The word gladness? Do you know what that Greek word is there? That word gladness? It's the noun form of the word that Peter uses in our passage for greatly rejoicing. In fact, the the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse this way. It says, they ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. The early church, they were a people that were filled with joy. Why? Because they'd been saved. Because they had received the free gift of eternal life. They were a joy-filled church. And what brought about this joy? Their salvation did. When we recognize the salvation that we have been given by Christ, that should cause our hearts to rejoice. We should be leaving here this morning as people that are filled with so much joy because we are children of God. We should be sitting here this morning with our hearts filled with joy, overflowing with joy because we have been born again. Because God has chosen me. Because God has chosen you. Why? Because of anything that you did? No. Because of anything that I did? No. All by His great mercy. He saved us. And that should cause our hearts to rejoice. Now, although our circumstances can't steal our joy, there is something that will steal our joy as believers. What will steal our joy? Sin. Sin will steal our joy. Disobedience to God will steal our joy. Listen to what David said in Psalm 51 and verse 12 after his adultery with Bathsheba. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. You see, David understood that there is built into salvation the experience of joy. 
And he had experienced that joy, being saved by God. But because of his sin, he was no longer experiencing that joy. He was crushed by his sin. But he wanted the joy that he experienced in salvation to be restored. Restore it to me, Lord. And how does that restoration happen? By confessing and repenting of our sin. Which is exactly what Psalm 51 is all about. Psalm 51 is all about David's confession before God and his repentance turning away from his sin. That's what it's all about. John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a joyful verse. What a joyful verse. Our God, when we go to Him and confess our sin before Him and repent of our sin and we ask Him to forgive us of our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we cry out with joy and we praise God and we thank Him for being a forgiving God. Our sin will be forgiven. We'll no longer have the guilt of our sin, but we will be able to experience the joy that we have in our present salvation. And that's what Peter knows the believers that he's writing to in 1 Peter are experiencing. They are experiencing that great joy that they have in their present salvation. And so we find joy in our present salvation. Second, we find joy in our providential suffering. We find joy in our providential suffering. Turn back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, and notice what Peter says again in verse 6. He says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter knows the trials that these believers are going through. He understands. Nero had set fire to Rome, and then he blames the Christians for it. And those believers throughout the Roman Empire are now being persecuted. And Peter doesn't ignore the fact that these believers are suffering, but he acknowledges that they are going through hard times. He understands, yeah, you guys are going through some really tough times. You're going through difficulties in life. But that doesn't mean that their joy should diminish. Because their joy isn't dependent upon whether or not they are suffering. But their joy is dependent upon what? Their salvation. The fact that they are children of God. Now, notice that I said that we should find joy in our providential suffering. What do I mean by that? I mean that you and I go through suffering under the providential hand of God. Did you get that? 
you and I go through suffering in life under the providential hand of God. You see, as American Christians, we have things pretty good here, right? We have things pretty good. We don't experience the types of persecution that others in more hostile nations experience. Not to say that we don't experience persecution here, but case in point, we are meeting here together as a church in a building where we are not afraid of the authorities coming in and shutting us down, right? No one's living under fear this morning. None of us are sitting here worried that we're going to go to jail or possibly be killed for meeting together in the church. Pretty comfortable. We have freedoms that many throughout the world don't have. There are many who are meeting right now. As we sit here right now throughout the world who are meeting underground in remote places where no one knows because of persecution. But we have freedoms here that many throughout the world don't have. And because of that, we've gotten used to a comfortable Christianity that's usually pretty free from any suffering. And therefore, when we experience suffering, the first thing that we do is we blame who? Satan. Right? The first thing that we do is we blame Satan. And you'll hear people say, oh, I'm under attack from Satan. This is a, a satanic attack on me. If they're going through any kind of suffering. And while it may be true that there is some demonic force that is behind our suffering, we often forget that our suffering is also happening under the providential hand of God. Think, for example, of Joseph. Joseph. Did Joseph suffer? He did. But did Joseph suffer outside of God's providence? Or within God's providence? It was within God's providence. And Joseph knew that. That's why Joseph said in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Although Joseph suffered, there was a divine purpose in it. We're getting a little theology of suffering this morning. There's a divine purpose in our suffering. One commentator said, every Christian should be able to see the overarching and overruling hand of God in their life. To know that no matter what evil man brings against us, God will use it for good. God will use it for good. And God does use our suffering and our trials for good. 
Peter knows these believers are going through trials, but he also knows that God is using it for their good. And therefore, what can these believers find in the midst of their providential suffering? They can find joy. (laughs) They can rejoice knowing that God's providential hand is upon their life, even though they are in the midst of suffering, and that God is using the suffering in their lives for good. For good. Now, as we look at verse 6 here, I want us to notice what we learn about providential suffering in our lives. What is it that we can learn about trials from Peter here? Let me give you four lessons that we learn about trials in verse 6. Four lessons. Lesson number one. We learn that trials are momentary. Trials are momentary. Notice Peter says that they are now for a little while. They're now for a little while. In view of our eternal salvation, the suffering that we endure here on this earth is momentary. It's just for a little while. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. The suffering that these believers were enduring was just for a little while. Momentary. In comparison to eternity, it was brief. This is brief suffering. And it's helpful to see that perspective when we are in the midst of trials, right? Oftentimes, we can allow trials to steal our joy instead of seeing them as momentary light afflictions. But when we have that perspective on our trials, then we will be able to endure them and not allow them to steal our joy. And isn't that how we usually see trials anyways? When we get out of a trial, we look back and we go, wow, that was short. But in the midst of it, it seems what? Long. When is this going to end? And then we get out of the trial and we go, whoa, I'm already out. Wow. But Peter's reminding us that trials are momentary. They're brief in comparison to our eternity that we have because of our salvation. And what does momentary affliction infer? What does it mean for the future of all believers? It means that we won't have suffering in the future when we get to heaven. Isn't that great? Isn't that joyful news? We won't have any suffering when we are in glory with Christ. Gone. It's only momentary because it's in this lifetime. But because of our salvation, our future in heaven will be trial-free, without suffering. And for that, we should rejoice. 
Lesson number two, there's a second lesson that we learn. Lesson number two, we learn that trials are used for a purpose. Trials are used for a purpose. Notice Peter says there, if necessary. If necessary. Why does God in His providence, in His divine providence, allow us to go through trials? Because they are necessary to serve a divine purpose in our lives. They're necessary to serve a divine purpose in our lives. One commentator says this, Yes, there must be some kind of necessity. Or he who loves his children so strongly would not thus afflict them. He himself is the judge of that necessity. And with him, it must be left. We leave it all to the Lord. Is it necessary for us to go through trials? To go through suffering? It is. How do we know? Because our sovereign God allows us to go through trials. It's necessary for us. There's a divine purpose in it. You see, if it was up to us, we would all choose to live a suffering-free life, right? Just coast through life. Everything's easy. Everything's fun. Everything's exciting. If it was up to us. But in God's providential plan, He allows us to go through trials. Because he wants to work something out in our lives. He wants to teach us something in the trials that he allows into our lives. Why does God use trials? God will use trials to humble us. God will use trials to humble us. As he did with the thorn in Paul's side in 2 Corinthians 12. Humbled him. God will use trials to strengthen our trust in Him, as He did with David many times. God was taking David through trials in order to strengthen David's trust in God. God will use trials to get our eyes off of this world and onto Him, as He did with Job. And listen, God will even use trials to discipline those whom He loves. God will use trials to discipline those He loves. As the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12. And they are necessary. Those trials are necessary. To do what? To grow us. To grow us. God uses them in our lives for His divine purposes. And for that, we can rejoice. Lesson number three. There's a third lesson that we learn from Peter here in verse six. We learn that trials are used to bring pain. Trials are used to bring pain. It's probably not the sermon you were excited about this morning, huh? 
But trials are used to bring pain. Notice what Peter says there. He says, you have been distressed. That word distress signifies pain of body or mind and means to cause one to experience severe mental or emotional distress or physical pain, which may be accompanied by sadness, sorrow, or grief. That's what that word means. The King James translates it as heaviness, which describes something like a a heavy soul or something that is weighing us down, right? We use terms like that. Oh, it's just weighing me down. There's a heaviness that comes. Now, to most people, they would look at this and they would think, man, that's not very Christian-like. That's not very nice of God to do. You mean God allows His children to go through pain and distress? Yes, He does. He does. But that isn't preached in many pulpits today. Because many are preaching that the Christian life is to be free from anything that might be painful or negative, right? You hear it, it's out there. Become a Christian and you'll be pain-free. All of your troubles will go away. Tell that to the Apostle Paul. Did all of his troubles go away? In fact, he had more troubles, right? But many in pulpits are preaching that The Christian life is trial-free, trouble-free, no pain, no suffering. But it's not true. Read your Bible and just see all of the men and women throughout history who have been faithful to God, who have gone through suffering, trials. But then we think, ah, we're above that. God allows the suffering and the pain to come into our lives in order for us to grow and to be used in greater ways. I can remember my strength coach in college used to tell us, no pain, no gain. As we're lifting weights in the weight room. It's painful. No pain, no gain. There was a lot of pain that we went through in order for us to be strengthened to go out and to play. And the same is true in our spiritual life. It's true in our spiritual life. God will allow pain and distress in our lives so that we're strengthened spiritually and ready to be used for greater things. And even though we might not like it, when we see the fruit that comes from it, we rejoice and we praise God and we thank Him for the trials. And then number four, there's a fourth lesson that we learn from Peter here in verse six about trials. We learn from Peter that trials come in many different forms. 
trials come in many different forms. Look at the end of verse 6. Notice what Peter says there. You have been distressed by various trials. James reminds us of this in James 1-2 where he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter what? Various trials. The Greek word for various there means many colored. This word is it's not referring to the number of trials, but to the many different types or forms of trials that God will take us through in life. He'll take us through many different types and many different forms of trials in our lives. What's amazing is that over in chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter uses the same word to describe God's grace. Listen to what he says. He says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards to the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. That word manifold there is the exact same Greek word for various. Back in verse 6. Exact same word. Just as the trials that we go through are various, so is God's grace. Isn't that amazing? God will take us through various trials in life. But His various or manifold grace is always with us. Which means that God's grace is sufficient for every trial that we face. Every trial. And isn't that what Paul had to learn in 2 Corinthians 12? After asking God to remove the thorn in his flesh, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Three times he cried out to God, God, remove this thorn in my flesh. God, please take this suffering away from me. God, please get me out of this hardship that I'm going through in life right now. Three times. But Paul says, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient even through the trials that we face. Now, let me ask you this. Will God ever give you more than you can handle? Will God ever give you more than you can handle? I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. God won't give you more than you can handle. Is that true? It's not. It's not true. How do we know? Let me show you. Turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul here, as he's writing his introduction to the Corinthians in this letter, is talking about suffering. And he's talking about suffering, but he's also talking about God who comforts us in the midst of our suffering. But notice what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. 
He says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, notice this, beyond our what? Strength. Beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. God will never give you more than you can handle. What does Paul say here? It was beyond our strength. It was more than I could handle. I didn't have the strength. None of us did. We didn't have the strength to face this. But notice what he says in verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that, uh uh-oh, there's a purpose, a purpose to the suffering here. Notice what it says. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. God always gives us a way of escape out of temptation to sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us there is a way of escape out of sin. But God will give us trials in life that at times are more than we can handle. It's beyond our strength. That's what Paul says there. This is beyond his strength. Why? Because it sanctifies us and it drives us to him. And God wanted to teach Paul not to trust in self, but to trust in who? In God. Trust in him. And as you trust in him, that, that trust draws you closer to Christ. And if you go through a trial and you come out sanctified and closer to Christ than when you went in, how should you respond? With joy. (laughs) Rejoicing. Thanking God for the trial that He just took you through. You see, as we face trials in this life, we need to remember that God is using those trials in His divine providence for our good. It's all under the sovereign hand of God. And He's using them for our good. Why? Because He loves us. Because He loves us. Because we're His children. And He cares for us. And He desires our good and His glory. He loves us. He loves us before the trial. He loves us in the midst of the trial. And He loves us after the trial. He loves us. Because we're His. Because we have been born again by His great mercy. And for that, we should rejoice. And so we find joy in our present salvation, in our providential suffering, 
And there are three more points to go, but we don't have time to cover those this morning. But let me just close with this thought. Don't close up your Bibles. Keep your Bible open. Let me close with this thought. Turn back over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter just told us in verse 6. He said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Notice that he uses the words greatly rejoice and distressed by various trials in the same sentence. In the same sentence. To many people, this seems like a paradox. These two can't mix, right? Rejoice, distressed by trials in the same sentence. But listen, joy comes not in spite of our trials, but joy comes because of our trials. Did you get that? Let me say it again. Joy comes not in spite of our trials, but joy comes because of our trials. And for many people, that doesn't make sense. Let me help you to understand how this works. In our lives, as believers, when we go through trials, where do we turn? To Christ. Right? We turn there. We turn heavenward. And we run to Him. And what does that prove? It proves your faith in Him. Right? It proves that you trust in God. In fact, notice what Peter says at the beginning of verse 7. Notice what he says there. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. What is Peter saying? He's saying there that the trials prove your faith. God brings trials in our lives to prove our faith. How? Well, in the midst of a trial, what do you do? You run to God. We turn to Him. We trust in Him. And isn't that what the readers of Peter's letter did? They're going through trials in life. But if they didn't have the trials, would they have the proof of their faith? They wouldn't. And if they don't have the proof of their faith, what would they have? They would have the opposite of proof, which is, listen, doubt. Ever doubted your faith? I have. Ever doubted whether you were truly saved? I have. I've doubted before. We all have. But let me ask you, is there joy in doubting your salvation? 
Does doubt produce joy? It doesn't. It doesn't. But it's because of the trial that you face as a child of God and you run to Him in faith that proves your faith and shows you that you belong to God. And what does that produce? Joy. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? It's amazing that God would use trials in our life to cause us to run to Him, not to doubt our faith, but to run to Him to prove the faith that we have in Him. And the reality that we belong to God as we run to Him, trusting Him, that reality should cause us to rejoice. I'm a child of God. And the proof of that reality should cause our hearts to rejoice. Because we could easily doubt that reality if we didn't have trials in our life, right? Think about that. If we just were smooth sailing all through life and we never had trials, our faith would never be tested whether we actually truly trust in Him or not. But God brings those trials in our lives to prove our faith, to prove to us, not to Him, He already knows, but to prove to us that we belong to Him. And for that, we rejoice that we are children of God. And that's why James says in James 1-2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And for that, we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for trials. Thank you for tribulation and suffering in our lives that causes us to trust in you. That causes our hearts not to turn to self because we know that apart from you we can do nothing. But we thank you that the trials in our life cause us to run to you, to trust in you. And Lord, we do admit, and you know that trials are hard, that the suffering can be difficult. But Lord, we thank you for the trials that you bring into our lives so that our faith is proven to us that we belong to you. Lord, we thank you for the great salvation that you've given to us. We thank you that we have been born again by your great mercy. Father, may that cause our hearts to overflow with joy. And Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning that doesn't know you, that doesn't have faith, in you, that doesn't trust 
and you alone for salvation. Lord, I pray that you would work on their heart, that you would soften their heart, that you would take their dead heart and make it alive, that they would understand and recognize their sin against you, a holy and righteous God. And realize that Jesus came and he died on a cross for their sin. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And he offers eternal life to all who repent and believe in him. Lord, I pray that you would grant them salvation this morning. That they would run to you in faith. Trusting in you alone for their salvation. And for those of us who are saved, who are your children, we thank you that you have saved us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your great grace. Lord, help us to go from this place this morning rejoicing that we are yours, that we have been saved by you. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.